Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we continue this study. We're calling Romans the letter that changed the world. And a couple of key transitional verses here now, verses 16 and 17. Some have said that this is the, the theme stated of the book of Romans. Some have said if you were to take the heart of these two verses and put them in one word, it would be the word would be gospel. And from this point on, after Paul makes a statement about the gospel, the rest of the letter to the Romans is the unfolding of what that means. So if you would follow along as I read. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Quite a bit of theological, biblical truth packed in those two small verses as Paul makes this statement about the gospel. We're going to look at some key points, just break down these two verses, a phrase at a time, and then make some points of application. So let's look at the first truth here. Number one, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He states it clearly there in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he start that way? Uh, some feel that that's just a, a literary device. Paul's saying that in a, in a negative way, something positive. I, I thought about the, the first time I was introduced to sushi. Kelly's uncle took me. He'd been telling me all about it, how great it was. And so I, I took my first bite of sushi in this little sushi place in Arlington. And my response was, that's not bad. What was I saying? That's good. Because I'd heard all my life how bad it was. And then I took it I said, that's not bad. And I was trying to say, this is pretty good. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I'm not ashamed. Really what he's saying is, I'm glorying in the gospel. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of, of uh, giving you this truth about the gospel and letting it unfold to you. He is not ashamed. As I looked at the, 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 the history here and the context, I thought about reasons that the Romans might, might uh, the people in Rome might resist Paul's statement about the gospel. Some translators take that phrase, I am not ashamed, I am not offended by the gospel. So how could Rome, the culture of Rome, the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, be offended by the gospel? I thought about this. The gospel is about a Jewish carpenter who was poor. Rome was all about wealth and power. He was, Jesus was Jewish. The gospel presents that as a Jewish Messiah. Rome really wasn't that excited about having Jews being a part of their kingdom. Uh, the, the Messiah died by crucifixion. That's the lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire. Rome was proud, a conquering, dignified, powerful entity. Christianity was all about humility. Look at the contrast there. Paul's already anticipating this argument that as he presents the gospel to those in Rome, it's going to go completely contrary to these proud, dignified Romans. They prided themselves in power. They prided themselves in their laws and their, in the way they were taking over the world. And here Paul is coming with this message about servanthood and humility. It's interesting. Paul is making it clear in this passage that he knows that Rome is powerful. He knows they're powerful. But what he knows is there's something that they're powerless to change. 
And that's their wickedness and their sinfulness. Pretty, pretty important truth there. I was looking at some resources. Uh, one philosopher named Seneca who lived around the, the, the first century who was an advisor to Nero. This is what he said about Rome, okay? This is an advisor to Nero, an emperor. That's what he said about Rome. He, he called it the cesspool of iniquity. Another poet in the first century named Juvenal, he said this, Rome is a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. Now that's Romans talking about their own culture. That's pretty wicked. That's pretty disgusting. A wicked, immoral, pagan culture with violence, suicide. Look at some of the stories we have of the histories of the day of how corrupt the politicians were. Paul knows as he writes this that he's going to take something that has the power to transform all of that. As I did my studying this week, I thought about our culture today. And what, what, what about our culture might they find offensive in the gospel? I, I believe the gospel offends. It, it offends people when we say it's free. It's a free gift. Because in our culture, people want to be religious and they want to do some things on their own. So it offends religious people to say that Jesus died for us because we were such sinners, offends people who say there's, there's good in all humanity. I mean, everybody's good. You've heard the teaching, there's a, a spark of divine in all of us, we just need to fan the flame. And when we preach the gospel that Jesus died for us, that offends them. When we say that Jesus not only died, but he, he, lived a, he, was, he suffered uh, greatly at the hands of his persecutors. And if we're going to follow Christ, it means that we may suffer. That offends people. It offends people to say, well, if I want to follow Christ, I sure would like to have an easy life. Can you promise me that? No, the gospel doesn't promise that. Paul was not ashamed of this gospel that offended, and we don't need to be ashamed either. So here's our truth to take home. People will be offended by the gospel. People will be offended when you share the gospel. Share it anyway. Share it anyway. Understand that they're not going to like that. Understand that when you say Jesus is the only way to heaven, people are going to resist that. It's not popular today. Don't be ashamed of that. I love uh, Max Lucado is, in writing in Stories of Hope. He, he, he kind of explains this issue of, of all roads going to heaven. Have you heard that one? That all these religions must be going the same place. It's just different ways to get there. Listen to what Lucado says. All roads lead to heaven. Well, the sentence makes good talk show fodder, but it doesn't make sense. Can all approaches to God be correct? How can all religions lead to God when they are so different? We don't tolerate such logic in other matters. We don't pretend that all roads lead to London, or that all ships go to Australia, or that all flights lead to Rome. Imagine your response to a travel agent who proclaims that they do. You tell him that you need a flight to Rome, Italy. So he looks on his screen and he offers, well, there's a flight to Sydney, Australia that leaves at 6 a.m., does it go to Rome, you ask? Well, no, but it offers great food and movies. But I need to go to Rome, you say. He says, well, let me suggest Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines flies to Rome? No, but you can win rewards on for on-time arrivals. You're getting very frustrated, so you reiterate, I need one airline to carry me to one place, Rome. Then the agent appears offended and says, sir, all flights go to Rome. Well, you know better. Different flights have different destinations. That's not a thick-headed conclusion, but an honest one. Every flight does not go to Rome, and every path does not lead to God. Folks, it doesn't change the fact 
that there's only one way. There's only one way to heaven, and Jesus said he was the way. People will be offended by that. Share it anyway. Number two, let's look back at the text. The gospel is God's power at work. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. God's power for salvation. That word power is the same word we get our word dynamite from or or dynamic or dynamo. It's a powerful thing. Some translators have translated that a force. It is is the force of God. Others have called it an effective power. I love what, um, I believe Andrew Murray translates it this way, the omnipotence of God. Here's what he says. He says, to say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation is to affirm that the gospel is the omnipotence of God operative unto salvation. I like that. The all power, all power that God has operating so that we can be saved. It's incredible. A fifth century bishop was teaching on this and and he talked about the power of the gospel. He gave this analogy. I think it rings true today. He said, take a pepper and it looks very mild. It looks like it's harmless. It might even be cool. And you take that pepper and you bite into it and it sets your head on fire. He said, that's the gospel. It, it, it may sound simple. God loves you and he has made a home for you in heaven and he wants you to join him there. But you get your teeth into it. And there's power in that. It'll transform. I love that analogy. God's power at work. Well, here's our, our application for this truth. Deliver the life-changing message of the gospel to those who've tried everything else. We can't be ashamed of it. It is powerful to change lives. So we need to deliver that life-changing message to people who've tried everything else. The gospel has the power to change hearts, to change minds, to change life orientation, to change relationships, to change people's understanding of how the world operates, to change people's worldview. The gospel has the power to do what nothing else can do, to change lives. I love the as Paul wrote all these letters to different places where he'd, he'd ministered. And remember we said that Romans is written at the end of Paul's missionary journey, so his first three, and he's preparing to go to Rome on another. And he's already ministered in Ephesus and Corinth. He, he's taken the gospel, this gospel that he wants to take to Rome, he's taken it to two very wicked pagan cities, and he's seen them transformed. So in essence, Paul is saying, you know what? I've seen the gospel with power to change Ephesus. I've seen the gospel with the power to change wicked Corinth. I've seen it transform those cities, and I believe it has the power to transform Rome. That's powerful. Keller says the gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal cognitive form. If you think about it, what what he's saying is, if we take the gospel and state the truth that the gospel is like we said last time, that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again, that he transforms lives. If we take that truth and we really sink our teeth into it, if we really study it, if we examine it, if we explain it, Keller's saying we're, we're unleashing the power of God in doing that. Don't underestimate the power of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power is released when we share it. Third truth. Through the gospel, everyone who believes is saved. Through the gospel... Everyone who believes is saved. Look at the text again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Everyone. 
Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. God's desire is that the gospel would go out, that everyone would have opportunity to respond and be saved. This word salvation is used here five times in Romans and, and, and the term to, the, the verb to be saved eight times. It's, it's really the heart of a lot of what Paul teaches here. In, in Paul's day, that word who can be saved, salvation is to everyone. Salvation didn't just mean uh, forgiveness of sin. It meant a changed life. It meant deliverance from sin. It meant deliverance from this world. It's ultimately to be in God's presence. So Paul said the gospel has the power to everybody who believes so that they can be delivered. That's powerful. Here's our truth for for that. Application. Stop trying to make yourself worthy of God's gift. Stop trying to make yourself worthy of God's gift. It is a gift. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, God does not ask us to behave. He asks us to believe. Behavior comes later. The gospel is the power to everyone, not who works their way to heaven. The gospel is the power to everyone who believes. That means to trust, to place your faith in. That means to completely give your all to the Lord. That's what believing means. It doesn't mean intellectually understanding this is true, what the pastor says. It means you're willing to stake your life on it. It means you're willing to stake eternity on it, to believe. So we're to stop trying to make ourselves worthy of that gift. If you're not a Christ follower today, if you're not a believer, if you've never received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior by a decision of your will, then I need to say to you, stop trying to make yourself worthy of God's gift. Sometimes I share the gospel with someone that they can, they, that, that Jesus loves them, that he died for them, that all they need to do is receive him by faith and trust him. And they say, well, I've got to get my life together first. I've got some things that I need to get right before I come to Christ. And I, and I, I, I just want to say as a perfectionist, when you get all your ducks in a row, one of them's going to fly away. You, you will never get your ducks all in a row. You will never be good enough for God to say, you're good enough, come on to heaven. You'll never be good enough. That's what the whole Old Testament law is about. Here's God's standard of holiness. You never measure up. We'll look at this later in Romans 3. We all fall short of that standard of God's perfection. No one measures up. So stop trying. How many dog lovers in the room? Boy, some of those hands went up really fast. I'm not going to ask about cat lovers, all right? This is, a, this is an illustration about dogs. Say you're a dog lover and this mangy... Flea-ridden, smelly, matted hair, terrible teeth, long-nailed dog comes up to your doorstep. And you open the door, and he gives you the puppy dog eyes. Please adopt me. And you think, oh, man, I would love to, but you need to get cleaned up first. Go find yourself a groomer. Trim those nails. Have your teeth cleaned. Get dipped for fleas. Get get a good shampoo. Get a cut. All that. Then I'll adopt you. You wouldn't do that, would you? What do you do? You say, oh, this is such a cute dog. You take it in and what do you do? You clean it up. You trim its nails. You give it a bath. You make it your dog. That's the way... That's the way the gospel is. God doesn't say, go clean your life up and then I'll see if you're good enough. You're not good enough. Stop trying to be. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works so that anyone can boast. If I could get to heaven by myself, Paul says in Ephesians 2, I could brag about it. Look how good I am. Look how worthy I am. It's not by my works. It's by grace. By grace. Stop trying to earn it. A couple of years ago, Michael Bloomberg, mayor of New York, was interviewed. I think he was in his 70s. They were talking about life and death. And somewhere in the conversation, he said this. He said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. Really? Now, folks, he's just saying, and it's in print now in the New York Times, he's just saying what most, how the way most people live. If there is a God, I'm going to cover my bases and I'm going to live as good a life as I can. So when I get to heaven, I can just go right in because i got a good life. It doesn't work that way, does it? For by grace you're saved. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift so that you can't boast. Stop trying to make yourself worthy. If you've never come to Christ, just come to Him as you are. He will take you, He will receive you, He will transform your life with the power of the gospel. Truth number four. The gospel reveals how God makes us right with Himself. The gospel reveals how God makes us right with Himself. Back to the text. Verse 17 now. By the way, I, I didn't mention this, but the Jew and the Greek, Paul's just covering all the bases, everyone who believes. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Let's talk about this. God's righteousness. Some translations say the righteousness of God. It's been translated a bunch of different ways. Literally, it is this God kind of righteousness. So much has been written about this phrase. A bunch has been written about what is, what is Paul saying when he says it's God's righteousness? Three kind of just grouping everything into three views. First of all, some say he's talking about God's righteousness. He, he's talking about the attribute of God that he's a righteous God. Now, there's merit in that, but I don't think that's the heart of it. Then some say, well, what, what he's talking about when he says the righteousness of God, he, he's talking about the status that God gives his people who come to him. So in, in, that, in that understanding, it is God's righteousness, it is God's, God's rightness that he's, he's given to you. He's made you right with himself. And then others say that it's about that, but to take it a step further, it refers to the activity, God, activity of God in making you right with himself. So here's my theological analysis of that. It's all three. Really, the, the last two are the heart of it there. It is true that God is righteous, but here he's talking about the, the activity of God as he makes you right with himself so that you can be right with him and, and have a status or a standing with him. They're both there. Sometimes we say the best commentary on Scripture is other Scripture. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and I think it'll help explain what Paul is saying there. Philippians 3, 9. Paul is writing about Christ. He says, and then I'm, I may be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So it's, 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 it's clarifying. This righteousness is what God gives us. And then look at 2 Corinthians with me, chapter, um, chapter 5 on this one. 2 Corinthians 5. 
Great discussion on the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Look at this. Not counting their trespasses against them or their sins. In other words, not holding their sins against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is, share the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. You have this, we need to take it to people. But look with me now at verse 20, at verse 21. He made the one, so God made the one who did not, did not know sin, Christ, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. The Bible says that God took this sinless Savior and took the sins of the world and placed it on him. So that in the original language here, it says to be sin. In other words, to to become the weight of the sin of the world. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Talk about a blessing. Talk about a privilege. God restoring us. God reconciling us. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us as a sinner, that God would do that to make us righteous. I love what, love what Douglas Moose says about this. He says the righteousness of God in Paul's writings is personal and relational. It speaks not only about God's work on the cross in Christ, but more directly of his work in the individual human lives. As he puts this, those of us who respond to the gospel in faith, in right relationship to him. I love the way that's said. Wasn't that great that it speaks of the personal relationship as God brings us into right relationship with him. Here's the application of that truth. Just one. By the way, there's like 20 applications on all of these. I I want us, those who who have trusted Christ as personal Lord and Savior, Christ followers, believers, I want us to rest in the solid assurance that we've been declared right with God. Rest in the assurance that you've been declared right with God. The righteousness of God. The righteousness that comes from God, that's imputed us, that's that's demonstrated and transformed our lives and makes us in right standing with Him. Some have used the analogy of being in the courtroom where the the judge says, you're guilty. And then the the next sentence he says, you're innocent. In other words, you're condemned but I'm going to set you free. That's what the gospel does. You're a sinner, but you say you're saved by grace. It's more than having your slate wiped clean. It's being put in right standing with God. That's powerful. It's more than God saying, I forgive you for your sins. It's God saying, now we're going to relate rightly to one another. It's going to be different. We're adopted as as citizens of the kingdom of God and as children of God. I love the way Keller analyzes this or, or illustrates this. He said it's like, it's as if we were taken off of death row and the slate's wiped clean, you're not going to be executed, and then they hang the Congressional Medal of Honor around your neck and you're treated like a hero. That's what we have in the gospel. You have been declared a sinner, but then you've been declared Uh, forgiven by the gospel and now you're given this medal of honor that says you're a child of the king walk in it wow you're in right standing Christ follower with God because of what Christ has done he he took the the offense dealt with it completely so the relationship could be right with God 
and he makes you his child. That's incredible. Think about a, some scholars that they've tried to explain this passage and this, this reality of being made right with God and said, imagine that you're trying to do business with a company and, and so they start doing a background check on you. And they, they identify, okay, they can do business with you because there's no, there's no liabilities, there's no debt. They've looked at your track record. There's, there's nothing in their records that's going to hinder your relationship with them. So they say, let's do business together. That's the gospel. God, because of what God has done, he looks at us and he looks at our track record and, and chooses to, because of the gospel, say, your record's clean. There's nothing that's going to hinder this relationship anymore. Rest in that. Rest in that. You're forgiven. You're accepted. Number five. Salvation is appropriated by faith from start to finish. Salvation is appropriated by faith from start to finish. Here's the phrase, verse 17. For in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Let's stop right there. Probably as much has been written about that phrase as has been written about what it means, the righteousness of God. From faith to faith. Let me just read you some possible translations of that phrase there. By faith alone, some translate it. Some translate it as the basis of nothing but faith. Others translate it, faith from first to last. I love what J.B. Phillips, how he translates it, this passage. He calls it a process, or translates that word faith to faith, that phrase faith to faith, the process of, being, of beginning and continuing by faith. So let's look at that with that translation. For in it God's righteousness is revealed, the process that begins with faith and continues in faith. I like that. I think that's probably the, the heart of what Paul is saying here. By the way, this is Luther's aha moment. The righteous or the just shall live by faith when he realized that it wasn't about what he had to do to make himself right with God. As a Roman Catholic monk and going through all of the, the, the penitence and everything they had to do, he realized it didn't make him right with God. And he saw this and it, it just transformed his life. This, this relationship with God begins by faith and continues by faith. I think that's the heart of what Paul is saying here. So I've got a couple of Applications for us. First of all, accept others as you have been accepted in Christ. Accept others as you have been accepted in Christ. As I've reflected this week on the grace that God would show me to forgive me of all my sin. And that he would say to me, Kevin, you're part of the family now. Come on in. And to say, Kevin, when I look at you now, I see the righteousness of my son, Christ. That's, that's incredible. And I, I can't help but say, God, thank you. Thank you for accepting me as messed up as I was. The Bible says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Romans 15. Let me encourage us Let's accept others as Christ has accepted us. Have you noticed we do this? We want all the grace for us, but we don't show so much grace to others. Let's show grace. Lastly, as you have been saved by faith, continue by faith. As you have been saved by faith, continue by faith. Paul mentions this from faith to faith. The righteous will live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk. 
you come to Christ by faith, live by faith. We, we don't say this out loud in our Baptist circles, but I've been a Baptist all my life from drinking the apple juice and Kool-Aid in the nursery and stacking the cardboard blocks. I've been a Baptist all my life. We don't say it out loud, but many of us live this way. Saved by grace through faith, kept by works. Here's what I'm saying. That's, that's a distorted view of the gospel. So many of us operate in, I've received salvation by grace through faith, and I've got I've to work hard for God to keep myself saved. We don't need to. We're secure. Rest in that. You cannot make yourself any more acceptable to God if you tried. Quit trying. That's what the gospel's about. It's, that's what grace is about. As you've been saved, walk in that faith. Dallas Willard writes about electricity coming to a rural area where he grew up in Missouri. Let me just read you. I think it'll illustrate this power of the gospel. As a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines into the area where we lived, and electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. He goes on to say, You may think this comparison is rather crude, and in some respects it is, but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, had heard the message, Repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent, or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, their scrub boards and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines, and their radio with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right, right there near them, where by making a relatively simple arrangement, they could utilize it. Strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some didn't want to change. Others could not afford it, so they thought. But to be sure, God's kingdom has been there as has been here as long as humans have been here and longer. It's been available to us through simple confidence in Jesus, the anointed only the anointed one only from the time he began as a public figure on. Now, Willard is saying this. The gospel is like electricity. God's power is waiting to be unleashed in your life, transforming you, but you've got to accept it by faith. You have to make a decision to say, I receive the gift of eternal life. I exchange my life for yours, Lord. You become boss. You become savior. I receive it. Have you done that? Praise God if you have. You know what the gospel is about. Have you not done that yet? I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Let's pray together.